Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich. On this episode of the podcast, we're excited to be joined by Ali Pitts, host of the Russophiles Unite movie podcast. This week, we're going to be chatting about adaptations of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, specifically Joe Wright's 2012 adaptation and Alexander Zarki's 1967 adaptation. We're going to be talking heavy breathing, mustache licking, and everything in between. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get into our show, we wanted to give a quick shout out to our newest patron, Alex. Thank you so much for supporting the show. If you're interested in helping out the show, like Alex, take a look at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. We put a lot of work into our tiers and rewards, and it really helps us out. If you're looking for a free way to help out the podcast, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Yes, thank you for the updates, and also thank you to Ali for joining us. We're really excited to have you on today. But yeah, thank you very much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Of course, Ali. Well, before we get into our usual stuff, do you mind introducing yourself a little bit to all of our listeners? Sure. So as you can probably tell from the accent, I, I'm from the UK. I spent about five years living in Russia from my mid to late 20s. And I was big into films probably from the time I went to university and the couple of years between uni and heading out to Russia. And then my film watching kind of dropped off a cliff while I was out there, mainly just because of my work schedule. Um, I was often working split shift, so it wasn't really conducive to watching like, you know, 90, 90 minute, two hour, you know, two and a half hour movies. So once I'd come back from Russia... I was kind of like, I want to get back into watching films, but I also want to keep up with my Russia stuff, my Russian language, my Russian culture. And, you know, sounds like a really pretentious word, but like engagement with Russian culture. (laughs) Um, So so this was kind of a way of like multitasking. And I'd been on a film podcast a couple of times. Uh, It was it's long gone. It was called Classic Schmassic, uh, where they discussed like old movies and you know with a certain reputation and both of the the movies i discussed on there were russian movies i had a really great time and i was like do you know what i think i'll have one of these myself like how hard could it be (laughs) it turned out you know doable (laughs) so yeah and like several years and 50 odd episodes yeah here i am so yes so that's me doable enough for at least four years and ongoing yeah apparently (laughs) yeah 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 occasionally i just go like i do breaks between seasons and i think that's pretty crucial to not Mm -hmm. like burning out after a few years but yeah no it's still fun um and it's it's really cool how kind of collaborative the like podcasting world is as well so you, you always get to new and interesting people so yes it's good like i don't know why i'm trying to sell people listening to a podcast <laughs> on the idea of podcasts <laughs> very weird just realized what i was doing i'm sold and i, and I haven't even i haven't even had a drink yet this is this is not a good sign no that's fine well speaking of that what are you drinking actually so what i am drinking is uh bielaya berioska vodka which Ooh. is, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a nice uh, vodka with some um, some birch juice in it. I've had this bottle for an insanely long time because, like, I feel like this is special. It was also given to me for a present, so I feel like I can only 
have it on special occasions. Yeah. And also, I'm just not a big vodka drinker. You know, that's not a legacy of my time in Russia that I have. It did not convert me to that. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, I am kind of cracking that open. So, I will, uh, yeah, I will have <laughs> my shot of that. Well, cheers. Oh, here he goes. Hmm. I feel very bad that we didn't toast to anything. Cause <laughs> <laughs> we, can to- we can toast at the end once we've all introduced and we'll... We'll toast to um, movie adaptations, some more than others. Yes, <laughs> some more than others. <laughs> what do you, What do you have, Cameron? <clears throat> so I'm drinking the most expensive beer I've ever bought. Ooh, it's brewed in like one of the five or six breweries which are in my small town, which is weird. Uh, it's called the Machine Baltic Porter, inspired obviously by that uh, Bert Kreischer bit about the machine, which. After I learned Russian was forever ruined more for me by realizing that he was probably just saying I am a car, which is still funny, but not quite <laughs> as funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was like $17 for a four pack, which is ridiculous, but hopefully it's, it's good. Uh, yeah. How about you, Matt? So, so last episode, we talked about how there can only be one or two nice drinks per episode and the other person must necessarily fall uh, because it's only three in the afternoon while we're recording for me. I, had to, I forgot to get uh, a special beer, so I had to go out and I had to, I had to pour what I had on my, on my drink cart, which the first thing I grabbed was Jack and I had a cherry Coke right there and I said, all right, let's experiment. And honestly, not that bad. Okay, you know, I won't take crap from anyone for it. Hey, it's a good drink. <laughs> and I will need it to get through <laughs> one half of these adaptations. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so why don't we just go over a broad overview of the two films we'll be talking about. So Matt, you've actually read Anna Karenina. So can you give us like a, a brief overview of really the story? Because the, both of the movies are close enough that it's not worth uh, analyzing them individually, I think. Oh, well, con- comparing obviously, yes, but explaining the plot line individually would be a bit overkill. So plot line, <laughs> I don't know how to explain a whole 800 page book in like two sentences. Um, Come on, condense, condense, condense. condense. Uh, basically, the, the hardest challenge for adaptation, which I'm actually writing about right now, in my opinion, is the fact that it's separated into two main plots. You have the hmm. Anna Vronsky plot, uh, obviously the one in which she has the affair with Vronsky and she's on her husband Karenin. And there's this whole weird love triangle sort of deal. And then you also have the Levin-Kitty plot line, which is kind of where we start and where we end. And Levin is this whole kind of (laughs) searching for his soul and his proper way to live throughout the... Tolstoy analog. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's Tolstoy's self, which is written into the story, which is really fun and really difficult Mm. to adapt because most of it is like him reading philosophers and mowing grass for like hundreds of pages. (laughs) So... Uh, yeah, so so both of these films we had discussed, I mean, they, they overview kind of these two lines, but mostly favoring the Anna plot line quite significantly, mm-hmm. which is an issue that I take, but we, we can get into it later. I can definitely see why they go that route, though, yeah. just in terms of like incident and kind of like dramatic and kind of like pulling pulling the audience in it's like it's a slightly harder sell it adapts better (laughs) to screen i think Mm, than a lot mm, of the other some of the other parts yeah yeah but it does seem like if it's an 800 page novel you probably want to go the minis miniseries route but i don't disagree yeah i this is what i part of the thing the issue that i have is that anna's plot line honestly in the book only takes up maybe 40 percent of the book uh the other plot Mm. line takes up another 40 percent, and then you have a little bit of like 
steva drama just kind of sleeping around and whatnot <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> oh yeah that that guy is a drama ma- magnet <laughs> yeah i well, i think it's can do you mind if i jump into the to the 2012 film then we can maybe go back to the 1967 because sure sure absolutely i, I want to hear what you thought having not read the book i'm genuinely okay. curious <laughs> yeah well, the, i think matt's already heard me go off about this for a while but the 2012 <laughs> film to me is like I think it is what Wes Anderson like would have done if he was in charge of the cinematography of this film, uh, but it's not Wes Anderson. So instead of having the film itself, like the the scening is incredibly intricate in the beginning, where it's the whole thing is based around okay, we're in a set basically, so the set is changed by by extras in the background, and you see like the music that's being played. You sometimes see the people playing it. But he kind of forgets, or uh, Joe Wright, or whoever's in charge of that, kind of forgets halfway through, because this wasn't originally written like that. That was kind of a rewrite. And so you have this like weird mixture of this incredibly intricate, like Anderson, Wes Anderson-style scening, and then just like weird naturalistic scening in the latter half of the movie, really. And it just doesn't mesh well, because the whole the whole of the film really is is condensing. That's like the whole name of the game. It really cuts out all, un- well, I wouldn't even say necessary. It cuts out most of the dialogue unless it's like directly related to what's going on. Most scenes mm. are like only a couple of lines long, really. Like scenes which in the 1967 film are, are a couple minutes or just like two or three sentences in this new film. So it's mm. really condensing everything down to a very concise movie, which I think is admirable in some ways because it covers a lot of ground uh, in a way that is kind of engaging, but it also cuts out what the book is about because so much of the book is internal life and kind of meandering about it which is my main issue with the film is that it's i think it's an interesting approach but it just fundamentally doesn't work with the with the the work they have with their what they're adapting yeah it's a big challenge isn't it because like film has a much harder time conveying books like that that are that have a lot of like internal stuff and a lot of narration going on so in in some ways you're almost obliged to to do it that way because otherwise you can end up with quite a like stodgy static film that's just not very cinematic so in terms of like making something that's nice to this sounds really kind of dismissive but nice to look at mm-hmm. um like a plus plus it's it's a really beautiful film but yeah i can definitely see that yeah a lot of a lot of thematic stuff does end up kind of on the on the cutting room floor as it were it's a film that's incredibly full of spectacle, but it's kind of like um, sound and fury signifying nothing, if I can be uh, somewhat cheeky <laughs> about it. A, a nice, uh, nice uh, Macbeth illusion, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Or quotation rather than illusion. Yeah. 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 yeah it, there's like there's so much in it. It's so bombastic and it really is very over the top. And I, I think it could be mm. interesting. It's just the work itself. If it was its own story, I would be interested in it. But because it's I think losing so much in the adaptation in this style, it just kind of made it hard to watch for me overall even though it's like flashier and faster i was so much more engaged by the 67 film just because there was so much more there to pay attention to really than this one which like a lot of the character motivation honestly gets cut (laughs) in favor of like heavy breathing like matt alluded to earlier (laughs) yeah this 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 one is definitely the raunchier of the two which Probably should come as a surprise to nobody, seeing as there's the whole, uh, uh, what what was it, the Sovietskum Soyuzia Sexonyet thing. So this, uh, the, the 2012 film, it my, my favorite accolade that has made it into this article I'm writing 
from the Alliance of Women Film Journalists, they gave rights adaptation an award for movie you wanted to love, but just couldn't, which is how I felt about it. <laughs> uh, like, he's actually not mm. a bad director. He's done what, like, good period pieces previously. He has some scenes that I think are really stand out. Like, I, I, people might consider it cliche, but I thought the dancing scene, particularly between Anna and Vronsky, the way everything fades and he uses the light and obviously the costuming is fantastic. And that was a scene mm. where he really shined. And then everything after that, just right downhill. Oh, it's funny. Yeah, I I, I liked it, I think, more than both both of you guys. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how much of this is like my reading of the, of the novel was so long ago. I read it like it was literally the first Russian literature I read when I was... I started it when I was doing my A-levels before I went to uni and then just like put it down because I was like, uh, I should probably actually try and study for my exams. <laughs> and then I picked it up again in my in my first term at, at uni and then just, you know, because apparently that is a good thing to read. <laughs> you know, your first time away from home. I know. <laughs> Dense, depressive Russian literature. That's, that's the way to go because that is that is... That is undergraduate alley brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I have to say, I was I was surprised that because uh, I actually looked on Kinopoisk, which is if you're not familiar with it, it's essentially like the Russian IMDb or Russian Letterboxd. And generally speaking, like Russian critics didn't hate this. Hmm. Like there were more positive reviews than negative. That absolutely shocked me, just because. I kind of anticipated that they would almost like hate it on principle. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was that was a like a pleasant surprise, and maybe that will teach me for being like <laughs> just like stereotyping Russians as just being like you Westerners adapt some of our <laughs> our culture. No, automatically bad. You don't get it. No, <laughs> thumbs down. And apparently they they weren't like that. So so that's that's kind of kind of interesting. That is. Um, yeah, it even has a slightly better like audience rating mm-hmm. than uh, than it does on on IMDb. I mean, it's still not hugely high. It's like six point eight versus like six point six. Um, but yeah, it's it's still pretty high. Uh, did you know who was the um, the writer of the screenplay for the twenty twelve version? It was Stoppard. Stoppard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom Stoppard. Mm-hmm. So I don't know whether you're. I mean, I'm not super familiar with. Because he's he's had a you know long and illustrious career, but I do really like uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead by him. So um, yeah, it's kind of interesting that you have somebody who has like a literary slash theatrical pedigree doing the adaptation. So I think it had a lot of good parts. I really do, and I mm. wanted to like it, but I think one of the things that from people I've talked to about it where they really missed an opportunity to do better was the casting. I, I don't know if I agree with the way the movie mm. was cast. I think Jude Law plays far too sympathetic of a Karenin to make the story ambiguous because you want to side with Jude Law uh, for one. And two, I don't think Kira Knightley is a good Anna Karenina. I think she plays, um, I, I don't know. From the books reading, Anna d- doesn't look like Kira Knightley looks. Uh, uh, I wondered whether you would mention this because I don't know if you're familiar with Michelle Birdie from the Moscow Times uh, from Twitter column. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, also being a guest on Roosevelt's United. I just thought I'd drop. That. Yeah, I think I, I think <laughs> yeah. I listened to one of the episodes where she was a guest. Yeah, 
Oh yeah, she was she was an utter star. But I remember like and this was probably I actually read this in the physical newspapers when back when Moscow Times was still like physically on the stands, the columns she wrote around the time. And I think the words in Russian one of the words obviously because he obviously uses several, but he describes uh, Anna as Ros Roskoshnaya, I think. Which the nearest translation it sounds like would be like voluptuous, full-bodied, perhaps. I don't, it's yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah, like like I feel terrible that we're three men discussing like women's bodies. It makes me feel a bit icky. But like, you know, clearly Kira Knightley is a very beautiful woman. But as Michelle Birdie pointed out in her col- column. Roskoshnaya is probably not the first adjective that you'd be reaching for. So yeah, yeah, that mm-hmm. that was a familiar point to me. Where yeah, yeah, I think it really just reflects kind of ch- change of beauty standards between the actual novel and then 2012, of course. Uh, but but sure. I think to me it allows Joe Wright to kind of cast her in this sort of temptress position, which I don't know if I mm. would characterize her as in the reading per se and so that's where i get kind of a different like i'm like okay he clearly had a vision of what anna karenina was going into this perhaps or he just wanted to take the pride and prejudice cast and say okay i'm gonna recast you in different roles (laughs) which is possible well of course because you also you also get uh matthew mcfadden coming Mm -hmm. you know from from playing the the romantic lead in (laughs) in pride and prejudice to being like the goofy yeah. Epicurean side character. <laughs> I have to say, both both actors playing Steva seem to be having an absolute freaking yes. whale oh, yeah. of a time. Yes. They had to have. Yeah, they are having so much fun. Um I, I have to say, actually, the, the Russian actor Yuri Yakovlev, he is kind of like for 60s and 70s Soviet movies, like their MVP. He just turns up in a lot of stuff and he's always just like fabulously entertaining I like and, he's, and he's got quite a lot of range as mm. well like he's always playing different you know very different characters so yeah he kind of in some ways like reminds me of like a russian john cleese but he's a better actor than that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it's interesting that you both bring up the the joe wright's previous work because i watched this with, mm. with a friend who'd seen it and when she was watching this she she saw a lot of parallels with that and just the filmmaking style and that's mm. was something I didn't notice as much until I watched the 1967 version where I was looking at it and I was like, this is, getting back to the idea of it as spectacle, really interesting, but like kind of divorced from the realities of its time, of what this was actually in, like what it is like to be in Imperial Russia in the late 19th century in, among the aristocracy. Mm. Because, you know, when you're watching the 1967 version, obviously you have people who are, you know, French is a default language. So you have people who are dropping in and out of French into German. Oh, there was people so much English. French. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like there's a, a bunch of different languages because there are people from, you know, all over the world coming to the capital of Russia to help mm. out with various things. And it gives you like a sense of scale or just people from around the world, whereas the, you know, 2012 version is just everyone speaking English. And of course, you hear Russian in the background sometimes, but it just it that in other ways, it just seems kind of divorced from its time period and really could just be like a period drama anywhere, really. If you told me like this is, I don't know, English society and then change the the costuming a bit, you know, I don't think too much would have to change in order to make that in order to make it believable. Yeah, yeah. Um. It- it does feel like because if you just write the major plot points out of Anna Karenina, the novel, you go, this sounds pretty melodramatic, mm-hmm. and it's almost like 
Well, it sounds melodramatic, so let's just lean as hard as we can into the melodrama <laughs> to the point that we basically fall over. Yeah. So I enjoyed that. I, like returning to your earlier point about like the the whole like theatrical setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that they kind of forget about it and then like like remember again at various <laughs> points. I kind of like that. It, it was it was weird. It was almost like watching a musical at times, d- just without the songs. Right. Just because you had like this highly choreographed like stuff with the the kind of the like in Steve's office where you have all of these people like stamping stuff in time. I did quite enjoy that. That was a beautiful. That was a beautiful transition the first time into the office from the train tracks right into the stamping. I noticed that on my second watch. Ooh, that was nice. Yeah. In terms of visual flair, it's just like chef's kiss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah. The cinematographer and set designers and all the technical folks. Mm. Well, and of course the director as well, just, you know, really earned their money in that regard. Yeah. So. I think it is successful in like the... Look, what they're doing, I think, is really nice. It just like it's just the story itself that I think that that just doesn't marry it. Because I think I saw mm. at least the introduction of the naturalistic uh, perspective was more so when they're in the countryside, away from the city, and I thought that was kind of mm. like a nice divide to have. But it just like the rest of the story, there's so much spectacle, which I like. I really like it. It's just like so much of the what I got from Anna Karenina is like kind of subtle characterization, and in the 2012 film, it's really like their equivalent of that because they've taken out so much dialogue. It's just like, here Knightley's staring off into the distance where she like kind of smiles painfully mm. and then goes off and does something. Whereas in the older film, I'm able to follow the logic of what the characters are feeling and why they're doing things much more clearly. Yeah. It also is a very interesting and bold choice to like every so often just like whack you upside of the head and remind you that you're watching mm. a like a performance of a thing and just kind of like de-invest you in the characters. I guess I still found myself, I still felt emotionally invested, but it was, it was, it did strike me as a weird choice. That said, I have heard, and I haven't read Anna Karenina in, in Russian, but I have heard some people say that the, the tone of the narration is often like quite like, maybe not distance, but there's a certain amount of like irony there. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting because that was definitely something that I didn't particularly pick up when I was reading it as like an 18, 19 year old was, I just took it like at face value and dead seriously. And that's obviously a big challenge as a translator is kind of (laughs) conveying like someone being slightly sardonic and sarcastic, like in another language. Right. I don't want to like get into it too, too much, but Mm. a lot of it comes from just I mean, there's really heavy irony, particularly when you get into the the Steve part, because the way Tolstoy like uses narration is absolutely fascinating, and people have written like mm. a lot of stuff on it. Um, oh, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Steve, I mean, there'll be plenty of paragraphs about Steve just, oh, woe is me, my wife is so old, and she's, oh, what are you, what's a man like me supposed to do with a wife so old? I mean. Steva, she's like one years old, one year older than you. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really, it's really funny. It's, this is a total, total coincidence. But uh, I was just rewatching a couple of little parts of the Seven Year Itch, and I don't know if you've seen it, but it's, it, it's basically this late-ish thirties guy is 
in New York in the hot summer. He sent his wife and kids off to the summer. And he has a similar, like, wine rant about how his wife is old and lost her looks. And it's basically the same thing as Steve. <laughs> It's mm-hmm. just like in a twenty, you know, like mid twentieth century New York yeah. setting. But it did make me think, like, this is—is is it also like a just common like male delusion about like mm. how men age versus how women age? But oh yeah, it's just like Steve. It's <laughs> he's funny because he's like he's a fun character to be around, but he is also awful (laughs) he's such a terrible person yeah and yet quite fun to hang out with which is probably like one of the many truths of the book is that (laughs) like the terrible people in life aren't always the worst people to be around like goodness me like sorry editorializing but in british politics our freaking prime minister boris johnson he's a fun guy but he is also a dreadful human being (laughs) (laughs) i think that's um what tolstoy sees as evil characters they're not the ones that you look mm. at and you're like oh this person's actually the devil the evil a lot of times comes from the fact that it's difficult to pinpoint that they're doing something evil in the moment unless you have kind of this large scale look that we get into the multiple conversations and the internal monologues that steve has with himself well and just the like the refusals to to change because he seems to genuinely feel guilty about having hurt Dolly. But does that mean he doesn't have a fling with an attractive ballerina later in the plot? No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I think he just he he forgets instantly. He has like no memory. That's kind of the that's where his evil comes from. That's how he hurts people. It's not a malicious evil, uh, which is yeah. why he's fun to be around. But it's he's also horrible to everybody. <laughs> like in the sixty-seven version, they have the thing of of his wife and his kids in the carriage and they're char- she's trying to get uh his what steve's wife is trying to get clothes for his children and <laughs> she she says can i have some money to pay and he reaches into his pocket and he goes ah just tell him to put it on my tab or whatever i gotta go get some fresh oysters <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, it's just like nailing his character mm-hmm because he's just like such a kind of epicurean hedonist it's yep. just like yeah nope the oysters are calling my name so yeah well speaking of the 67 version do you mind if we jump into that although one last thing of course yeah yeah kira knightley licking i don't remember the actor's name who plays vronsky but she like licks his mustache in one scene when they're like trying to just tell each other how much they love each other and they're like yeah, you are <laughs> It's like like honestly it's like they're just oh, Cameron, sitting like please. in the forest. <laughs> they're just they're just sitting in the forest, but it's like if you put this audio over them at like the sex scene, it would make just as much sense as them sitting in the forest together. And then she like they kiss, but she like licks his mustache first, and it's a real big close up, and I just <laughs> it is it's a bit much, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, let's let's get into the um, <clears throat> 67 version a bit more, in, mm. which is similar in a lot of ways, but then towards the end really starts to change. And I think that, for at least for me, it makes a lot of the difference in the way I see these two films. What changed it for you? Why do you see it differently? Well, in the latter half of the film, obviously this film has a lot more narration overall, and there's a lot more people talking. Um, something I mentioned earlier about the, the 2012 film, it's very compact, like very little dialogue doesn't serve the immediate plot that's happening. Whereas in the, you know, 67 version, there's no compunction about having dialogue that serves no purpose other than pure characterization, even if that's not directly relevant. Um, and there's a lot of scenes they add, especially towards the end. There's like a greater slowness at, at like toward, towards the end of the, of the film 
which I think brings out a lot more and kind of relates a lot more to Tolstoy's theorizations, which you really kind of lose almost entirely from the newer film, which isn't better or worse. It just is something that I thought worked with the theme of the movie with them focusing more strongly on the characterization itself. Yeah, I think one of the things that one of the characters whose lines are really, really, really drastically cut are Karenin himself. Mm. Like, they're probably, he's probably one of the characters whose characterization is most different. I noticed, I mean, I don't know whether you're familiar with the like 80s British sitcom uh, Yes Minister slash Yes Prime Minister. I don't know if you've mm. ever heard of that. No. Well, it has this bureaucrat called Sir Humphrey who is. Oh, he's he's like a legendary comic creation, but his ability to just make something that's relatively simple sound incredibly complex through bureaucraties. Karenin reminded me of that because just the way that he speaks, he just you know if there's a if there's a short word, he will try and find a longer word like to say instead <laughs> and he's and he just has like these long like ma- rambling monologues yeah i mean i'm realizing i'm a podcaster long ram- <laughs> rambling monologues. pot kettle you know <laughs> uh show yeah. a little self-awareness here <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah I, I think you're right yeah he, he's more ridiculous in in the soviet version i don't remember him actually being physically violent with anna though and that was the one thing in the 2012 version that it's kind of like, if you hadn't had that one scene where he shoves Anna to the floor, well, I mean, the fact that he shoves her to the floor at all, obviously terrible, yeah. but he shoves her to the floor while she's pregnant. And that's like, if you took that out, he's actually quite sympathetic, even though he's portrayed in terms of his costuming and his and Jude Law's posture and like haircuts. <laughs> like in a very severe way i have to say props props for, to you know a very handsome man like jude law <laughs> yeah. just being like completely uglied up for the role yeah i was marveling with my friend i was watching with and we were both like how does he look so much older in this film from nine years ago than he does today like right now <laughs> right 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 and this was probably around the same time that he was playing dr watson in those mm. sherlock Holmes movies where he's very dapper and handsome and dashing. Yeah. And here he's just this kind of like, yeah, just very serious. Um, like, yeah, again, pot calling kettle balding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but very sympathetic to like to what Matt's point earlier that the whole film, mm. it's like, it's hard not to feel for him because he's just kind of like hanging around trying to do his job. And then, you know, Anna is having her whole plot line where he is, you see why Anna's kind of like not really into him in the 67 version, or at least I followed, in that you see, like you said, that he's really self-contained. And I love the scene where he's just, they're at the races, and he's just rambling on and on about sports and how that relates to a civilization's civilizedness or not. In the 2012 version, he's stalking Anna. She doesn't know, well, she initially is there. He's like kind of hiding in the crowd. But this one, he's just hanging out with his wife, just going off. And mm. you can see that she's just like trying to focus on, well, on her lover in the race, but like really just trying to do something. And he just can't stop talking about that. Writ large, that being your whole life, I can see why if you were just marrying for convenience, a, a personality like that over time would just be like, oh my God, please shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and the fact that this is at the time where she can't go out and get a job of her own so that she's got something to you know get a sense of satisfaction and you know enjoyment out of it's like she's kind of dependent on her personal life for kind of all of her fulfillment and she's just married to this incredibly boring like 
bureaucratic weirdo. I have to say, again, in terms of like differences between characterizations in the in the two, the the Vronskys, like hmm. from this one to that one, like I think I was more judgy of Anna in the 2012 one for just because. Oh my goodness, the 2012 Vronsky is such a fop. Yeah. He is <laughs> such an insufferable fop. And yeah. I'm just like, yes, he's kind of hunky. He has killer cheekbones and a yeah. nice bod, but he is just like the most like self-regarding mm-hmm. just piece. This is of. why I th- I think the casting was off. I was watching this with my girlfriend who also hadn't read Anna Karenina, the 2012 version, and she was mm. like, I don't get why she why she's going for Brodsky when she's married uh, to Jude Law. <laughs> 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 like, she just couldn't get past it. I haven't seen it in full. I've only seen bits and pieces here and there, but there's a 1997 version with Sean Bean as Vronsky, and I'm kind of like, that makes sense. That makes sense. Most <laughs> most, most straight women given the t- are going to have a much harder time not running off with 90s <laughs> like Sean Bean. Unfortunately, they cast him with probably the only person who seemed to have no screen chemistry with him in that adaptation. Okay. Uh, Sophie Marceau, yeah. right? Yeah, that was. Yeah, although again, on the like the Tolstoy vision of what Anna should look like, Sophie Marceau is probably more that type than <laughs> mm-hmm. than Kira Knightley would be. But yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, I've swerved us from. <laughs> I, it's it's fine. I've I've watched so many of these. I love watching these adaptations. <laughs> oh, and there have been so many as well. Like yeah. I was just looking at the list of them. It's just like, yep, this is a story that. People keep coming back to, and I mean, part of it's just going to be name recognition. If you're just like cynically, <laughs> what sells? Oh, people have heard of Anna Karenina. Yeah, it's Russian and melodramatic. Let's do that. It's been ten years. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually I want to get into Anna's character in the '67 version because even though she mm. and Kira Knightley's character in the 2012 version are functionally the same, I think like there's just as you pointed earlier, there's a major difference in just. I don't want to say sympathy because either way you kind of see where they're coming from, but just the whole film in 67, I follow her arc so much better. And like up until the very end where the whole conclusion, it all completely makes sense to me just in terms of like, I see where this is going or especially um, because in the 2012 film, it's really all about the downs. You're you're really seeing Kira Knightley's character at like, you know, I feel bad, you know, if I'm not around Vronsky, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the major differences that the 67 film had for me, which is not even a big thing, is just you see when she and Vronsky run off and go to Italy, you just see that. And just like, it's maybe a minute or two of them just having fun Mm. in Italy. It's just a montage. But the contrast of uh, her feeling just awful with when she's married to Karenin and then having so much fun with Vronsky, it, it like it really made so much of a difference to me that it's not just like I feel bad. Now I'm with Vronsky in in the 2012 version, and now I'm with Vronsky and I feel bad. You see her height, and then when Vronsky kind of falls into the same pattern that Karenin did, which is much more I think better shown in the 67 version. You see why she mm. starts like falling into that like pit of despair where she has abandoned her whole life for for a man who's like I'll be there for you forever and then he falls into the exact same patterns that her former husband did kind of leading into this pit of despair of like well I can't I can't go back I can't go forward there's mm. nothing left for me which made so much more sense to me yeah and on a related note I feel like in the 67 version her falling for Vronsky is much more gradual whereas it's almost like it flips a 
flips a switch from her just being like, no, this is a really bad idea to, hmm, you're hunky, so I want you, and damn the consequences, <laughs> where it's much more, like, gradual in mm-hmm. the 67 version um, of her just kind of going, oh, well, you know, spending some time with him's not that bad. That's fine. That's, no, we're not doing anything wrong. It's just a lot more, like, believable that's how it kind of develops mm-hmm. rather than just being like, hmm, Okay, you're hot, so I want to sleep with you. <laughs> yeah, and they were having like massive fights or big scenes in all of high society, whereas in the old version, it's like very subtle of you know Anna spending a lot of time with him, people kind of whispering, and uh, Karenin is mad that that they're being made kind of fools of in public society instead mm-hmm. of as in the 2012 version, um, Vronsky crept you know uh, his horse falling and breaking its spine, and her like having a massive like you know almost le- leaping over the banister, you know, Vronsky or Alexei, are you okay, et cetera, et cetera, which is, it fits with the 2012 spectacle, and I don't think it's a bad mm. choice, but I think it just, the 67 subtlety fits the, the story itself better. Mm. I don't know if there are any major things about the 67 version that stands out to either of you. I I thought the the music was interesting because it was it was very it was often very jarring and very kind of like even from the perspective of now like quite avant-garde sounding Mm. like just dissonant and kind of screechy and kind of like "Uh uh-oh bad stuff is afoot whereas the music (laughs) in the 2012 one was much more conventional and it fit very well with the sort of the very heightened aesthetic that they were going with, but it was much more like conventional. Mm-hmm. So, um, which is funny because in terms of the the look and sound and pacing of the film, the sixty seven version is much more like straight down the line. Right. But the music choices are quite bold. Mm-hmm. If you were just to listen to the to the soundtrack, I, you know, I don't think I would want to just listen <laughs> to the. The Anna Karenina one divorced of it because it's just quite unpleasant to listen to, but it does quite work, I think. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think for me, just the, the casting I liked more in the 67 version. I've talked about it several times now, but mm. I think it I think everybody fit the characters that they were supposed to play a little bit better, particularly particularly Karenin. Uh, I think that uh, especially him being older in this one kind of accentuates some of the discomfort in the marriage. And just the blandness, I guess, of him as a character, he really captures the the bureaucrat sensibility that he has in the novel, I think, especially just his lengthy words and phrases. Mm. (laughs) Yes. That being said, there is one scene which I think worked better in the 2012 film, which is later in the film, Anna has is basically left and Karenin goes to see Steva and they're kind of having a dinner party. In the 2012 version, they have a dinner party where they talk about a duel fought between uh, a man and his wife's lover and he ends up killing the lover and you know they talk about it for honor and the 2012 version karenin kind of gets into it obviously because he's pretty raw about this and he says well, you know <laughs> what what use is dueling if if the lover had killed him what what use is is that what does that do for anyone whereas in the 1967 version it kind of just it, it's a moment that passes very quickly it doesn't really have a meaning and then karenin does go on to have a conversation with uh, dolly uh steve's wife about that which i think worked you know, works really well, and it's not in the 2012 version, but I think that that dinner scene captured something very uncomfortable that really, really worked for the film, and I think could have, you know, I, I liked it. I, I liked that a lot better than what they how they handled the 67 version. Yeah, because 
Kerenin is a very like practical and like sensible man. Like, and for him, the romantic, you know, the capital R romantic solution of like, well, just have a jewel, like, is just he just doesn't think the world should work like that. And it's you know, like you sympathise. Yeah, I mean, you totally under you would totally understand him when wanting to kill Vronsky, <laughs> but like he's he's smarter than that. Yeah, Karenin is just more of a character in the sixty-seven because you get him. His internal arc, where in, in 2012, Jude Law is like, he's just too sympathetic. He's just like beaten down by the world, where Karenin in 67 is is angry. He's out to get revenge, and he's dealing with that because that's that's not usually who he is. And it's like something that's tearing him apart, but he is still being a massive dick in, in like the divorce proceedings. <laughs> but, and I think that makes him more interesting as a character. Oh, yeah. Like the fact that he doesn't even want to keep. Serioja, yeah. he's mainly doing it just because he knows that that is the way to make sure that Anna is not able to be happy yes. like, having run away. Because, And part of that is just like selfishness on his part is that the fact that his wife has run off makes him look bad in society and may affect his career progression. It seems to be the subtext. Yeah, Obviously, there's like massive double standards about the, con- the consequences mm. for having an affair like i mean and that's that's kind of almost the point of the steva character is just like <laughs> look how easy men have it uh but yeah there's still there's still like a social consequence from for you know being cheated on yeah um in 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 society at that time um and now as well like it's not like you know people will make snide remarks if you know if a famous person you find out that they're like their other half uh is having an affair you're just going kind of like oh what was going on there? And it's terrible. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's not necessarily their fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was... You mentioned earlier the the way that the two, like, di- diverge at the end. I thought it was interesting, the 67's version, to stop where it did. It was one thing that I didn't totally like. I kind of got it, but at the same time, I did like the... 2012 one having a little bit of the sort of repercussions in the world and also just like following up with kitty and uh, levin slash Lyovin's story as well I, I like the fact that there was actually a little bit of closure to that that is an interesting point as well sorry <laughs> is uh is 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 levin is the uh, 2012 one really really felt like it was taking the piss out of that character whereas the 67 version like probably was a bit more faithful to probably Tolstoy's vision, seeing as it's an autobiographical character. But I kind of liked the choice to make um, Levin be, like, all self-serious in the 2012 version, because, yeah, that is kind of how that character does read to a modern audience, even if that's not Tolstoy's intent. Like, just his hat and the stupid beard. And stupid <laughs> hair, it's just... yeah. I think you're right, actually. That is something I really will give to the 2012 film is that... So I haven't read the novel, so obviously I can't say how true this is to the characterization. Mm. But for the film they were shooting, I think you're completely right that he really... He is still fulfilling the Tolstoyan archetype, um, and obviously in fewer words. But from a modern perspective, and we're kind of, you know, we're kind of making fun of him a little bit. Not saying mm. he's wrong, just so, you know, he's like a little overdramatic at times etc etc he doesn't always follow completely follow through with what he's thinking and then kitty uh, i uh, again can't speak to kitty's arc in the book but she actually kind of gives him a character arc and like the way they play off of each other which i think is interesting Mm. and i kind of like what they do with kitty in the 2012 film for the film they were shooting and that she changes him in the way that she transgresses uh social 
norms in order to help uh, Levin's brother, you know, even though his wife is a former prostitute, which is a black mark on on him and mm. his wife as far as everyone else is concerned. Well, and the fact that they have that whole Nikolai character, because one of the things I remember from way back and reading the book, the book was was the Nikolai character and just like I just remember the awfulness of the way his illness is described and just feeling like so bad for for him. I just like the fact that he actually gets he gets included in that version, even if he is very like much a supporting character. Yeah. Um I like that they fit him in. Whereas I don't know what the motivation for leaving him out in the Soviet sixties version was, but yeah, it's kind of sad that he doesn't make it in. But you know, you've got to make cuts somewhere. That said, talking of omissions, it's weird, and I hope I'm remembering this right, but we don't have Vronsky's suicide attempt in the 2012. I was going to mention that, yeah. <laughs> Surprising, considering, like, all of their other choices are just, like, amp up the drama. I don't want to, you know, th- that sounds very flippant to describe a suicide attempt as drama, because it's obviously a very serious thing. But, like, from a, like, melodramatic plot way you could easily characterize it that way joe, joe wright said he didn't include it because he didn't find it believable which i thought <laughs> what do you mean believable you're writing you're writing a <laughs> you're making a movie based on something that was written you don't have to believe in it <laughs> and also like vronsky wanting to end his own life because he is messed up about the situation isn't believable but anna's is i mean yes the like right. societal consequences aren't quite as severe well aren't nearly as severe let's be honest Mm -hmm. for him as they are for anna but still you can see him being messed up by it so yeah i thought it was weird that they took that out um again there's a lot to cram in and you have to make some cuts there but that that did seem like a big omission it seems like a big one not to put in it's not just like oh his brother that you know is in is kind of a side plot that's like Mm. They didn't really cut out much from him. He's a central character, and that's like a central part of what happens after he visits Anna at Karenin's house, um, being just completely emasculated, I think. And it's going to contribute to Anna being really, really messed up. The fact that this person who says that their whole life is about you and like loves you so much is like willing to... like to do that and just cause you all that pain i mean suicide clearly not a not a rational thing but like it's gonna affect her and contribute to how messed up she is just because it's so serious i feel like the i don't know i feel like they do an equally good job of like anna's sort of like paranoia sort of eating her alive essentially like even though they probably do it in a shorter space of time in the 2012 it's just like that I found that really affecting. It's just like, oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Just like, you're seriously your own worst enemy here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. I think either way, like her arc, although I personally prefer the 1967 one because I can mm. follow it, the way she is, I will give Kira, pro- Kira Knightley props in this regard. She does convey pain very well. And maybe that's just because like her smiles to me always read like she's slightly in pain for some reason. But <laughs> <laughs> her kind of conveying a silent, like desperate pain really comes through. And I'll give her props for that. I noticed an interesting thing about i think i noticed anyway an interesting thing about her performance too is that in front of most of the characters she seems like she's putting on an act like um she's speaking in a slightly more like affected a slightly pretentious way and the almost the only time that it drops 
is when she's talking to to Dolly. Actually, like it mm. seems like Dolly is the even though in that scene with Dolly, she's very much <laughs> manipulating her. Um, <laughs> it does seem like that's probably the actual Anna rather than just like the front that she puts up for everyone, which I th- I thought was interesting, and I didn't necessarily notice there being that much of a difference in the 67 version but part of that is just i'm not a native russian speaker so i i'm just not quite as well tuned to that but i mean i feel like i haven't talked enough about uh tatiana samoylova because she does give a really fantastic performance she does mm-hmm. but yeah uh, she was great <laughs> yeah and I, I don't know if you you guys have seen her other two famous films i mean you've almost certainly seen the cranes are flying fantastic mm. in that and also letter never sent is is very worth watching as well and it's a shame she didn't make more movies but mm-hmm. you know soviet cinema wasn't <laughs> wasn't the most efficient so and you know paucity of good female roles definitely a problem in the 60s mm-hmm. uh in the soviet union as it was well as it still is everywhere but anyway yeah this is very off topic but i do want to bring up in the 2012 version when when mm. levin and kitty are like having their kind of make up well maybe it was, let's get married uh i can't i just mm. can't get over the fact that they're spelling it out with like children's blocks um and maybe it's just because my friend described when i was watching it with my friend she was like i think they're playing sensual scrabble for illiterates uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> and i can't get that out of my head because like <laughs> it's just such a weird thing for them to be doing yeah and that happens in both in both versions doesn't it so that presumably must be a thing that's in the book because it's so long since i've read is it not in the book they do it with chalk um, on the table. Oh, so that's right. They spell it out, but the blocks were a, a little much. A little me. much. <laughs> yeah. Random, random detail yeah. in terms of my watching. Um, the Soviet version. My wife watched about the first half an hour with me before she was just like, oh, "I'm too tired. I'm going to bed, and you know, I don't want to watch depressing Russian <laughs> film with <laughs> with you anyway." Which is funny because she is a Russian lit major yeah. at <laughs> university. <laughs> And she speaks way better Russian than me, but she's just like, yeah, do you know what? I can take it or leave it. Yeah. But uh, she was very, very critical of like the hair and makeup and costuming choices <laughs> of the Soviet version. And she kept saying like, does Anna have a mustache or a mustache? Because she's American and that's yeah. how you pronounce it. But um, And yeah, in the early scenes that that does seem to be, but part of it is just like the version I watched on YouTube. Mm. It's it seems like the film is not in the best like state. Like they, I don't know. Some of it you wonder is that just Soviet film stock occasionally being a bit crappy? Yeah. Um, and how much of it is just this is an old negative that maybe hasn't seen any love since it was put, it, put away in a can when they stopped showing it in in cinemas in in the Soviet Union, so so that was one of the things. Like that was a big contrast. Is just mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. you know, just how nice the modern version l- looks, whereas the the old one is like this. Does feel like I am watching, you know, kind of a budget version. <laughs> even though you know the performances are very nice yeah it's great that you've got like the actual locations you've actually got novodevichy monastery and you've actually got like the peter and paul monastery in the background so that's very cool but yeah it just yeah i I think if you're coming to this having not watched a lot of so it films like the aesthetic might be a bit like 
Ooh. A little jarring. Yeah. They, were, they were working with yeah. working with some limitations <laughs> versus, yeah. you know, 21st century Hollywood. But yeah. Um, but that was interesting, the, the moustache detail, just because that seemed to be something that Tolstoy had a bit of a thing for, mm-hmm. because... Lisa in War and Peace. Ah, uh, you read my mind. Has <laughs> yeah, has has a bit of a a, a bit of peach fuzz mm-hmm. going yeah. going on on that on that top lip, and and I don't know whether this because I was my version of <laughs> studying for this was reading a chapter out of uh, Viv Groskop's The Anna Karenina <laughs> Fix, and she mentions the fact that like she says in an early draft of Anna Karenina, Anna had some lip fuzz going on. Mm. And I don't know what she means by an early draft. Like, I didn't know whether that's like the serialized version that was published in journals versus like the fully published novel or whether it was literally in a in a draft. I'm not sure. But yeah, that does seem to be like a very specific thing to put in. But Tolstoy was an interesting man with interesting (laughs) tastes. I know, understatement of the century. (laughs) A man of strong opinions. That's for sure. Ever since we started this podcast, uh, I can't escape um, uh, a friend of mine talking about Tolstoy's Kumis addiction. Uh, oh, which... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to convert the world to Christian anarchism yeah. and Kumis. That's it. <laughs> his life, That's all you need. Life's missions. Yep. Pacifi- oh, and pacifism. Yeah. It's kind of like the Spanish, in- Spanish Inquisition sketch. <laughs> pacifism and Kumis and Christian anarchism. <laughs> Yeah. And rejecting modernity. Yeah. I don't like planes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Leo. I have to say, it is it is interesting that like there was a movie version of Anna Karenina made within because he died what like 1909 1910 within a couple of years of his death there is a movie version of anna karenina being made mm-hmm. it's just like that is how much impact that story had it's just so weird to me also that he was just like mm, no i hate that book well that's what a spiritual crisis will do to you i guess <laughs> uh, yeah get, apparently yeah yeah <laughs> i would have been happy if i had written this book but you know it's just like nope it's appalling trash <laughs> And I'm a terrible person for bringing it into the world. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's about everything we had to cover for today. There's obviously a lot that more that could be said. But before we totally wrap up, Ali, we've had a lot of fun, uh, but we got to ask you, on a scale of one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? I think I am a Steve Oblonsky <laughs> level of merriment, you know. Yeah. I'm enjoying enjoying the finer things of life, including mm-hmm. birch juice infused vodka. Yeah. So. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, I feel that. Cheers. I think I made it to uh, any number of adaptations in the dance scene when, for whatever reason, people who adapt Russian stuff feel the need to do like those scenes with like the heavy breathing and the camera like going in a circle. And I feel like I'm I'm the I'm the one with the camera going around in the circle. You know. <laughs> oh yeah. It's just cut it, it. You know, it's a lot. I mean, both of them loved their whip pans. Mm-hmm. I think. I think even the the sixty seven version, perhaps even slightly more. In uh, that dance scene, yeah, it did, <laughs> did a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, that was one thing actually. Like, it was interesting the Soviet version's attitude to religion, because mm-hmm. on the one hand, you get this really like grandiose scene of an orthodox wedding that's very like reverently shot Mm. and then you have the lydia character Mm -hmm. who is just like soviet (laughs) anti-religious like religious people stupid am i right Uh, (laughs) yeah which you know (laughs) it's not that like the points that they're making are invalid but it's just so heavy-handed yeah 
Yeah, and she plays a religious person in the actual novel. She plays like a basically like born again mm. like Christian. She's a fascinating character. Yeah, sort of orthodox style. So so is that closer to because that's that is definitely a minor character that I do not remember from <laughs> reading it like fifteen years ago. Her role basically, she I'm pretty sure she like moves in with Karenin towards the end of the book, and she's the more or less corrupting influence on him because he has that tendency anyway. Like I may be mis misremembering mm-hmm. this, but I seem to remember hearing somewhere that Konstantin Pobiedonostsev, the like tutor to I, I want to say Alexander the third and Nicholas the second who was you know obviously incredibly influential that Karenin was Tolstoy kind of taking the piss out of that guy and he picked up on that and was mm. super angry and that may have contributed to Tolstoy being excommunicated by the Orthodox Church I don't know whether that is absolute hogwash but I feel like I've heard that somewhere and I was just kind of like that's pretty funny, Tolstoy, because <laughs> like Pobieda Nostsev was a like genuinely terrible human and deserved to be like immortalized in an unflattering way. Yeah. <laughs> in a great work of literature. So I guess that's the joy of being Tolstoy. <laughs> yeah. I guess. <laughs> Just your people you disapprove of, like immortalized forever as being pretty crap. And you know, deservedly so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah <clears throat> anyway we were wrapping up the show how, how did you end up cameron are you are you a, a whip pan or are you where are you okay so in in the 2012 version anna's like post uh, like i'm with ronsky kind of breakdown is really more spiritual uh in the 1967 version you have also her developing i think a slight addiction to morphine where she like every night mm. in order to sleep she drinks a, a lot of whiskey i assume and also drinks a lot of morphine in that whiskey, which I'm surprised she woke up after uh, doing that quite often, apparently. I feel like right about there, this is actually a pretty strong porter. <laughs> so it's like 9%. So this is at, <laughs> at 1 p.m. in the afternoon after like having a light breakfast of just some fruit and cottage cheese. It's really hidden. So <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm about there. Uh, but <laughs> what... <laughs> Before I get too into the weeds on that, what are we reading next week, Matt? Next week, we're going to be reading the first half of Gazelle Yakina's Zlaika. It won the Yasnai Polyana Literary Award and the Big Book Award in 2015. And, you know, great link as well yeah. with Yasnai Polyana. <laughs> Indeed. Almost like we planned it that way. We totally didn't, but it's almost like we did. serendipity at work. Yeah. yeah. Just, you know, oh my goodness. <laughs> Before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We've got Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Daniel, Alex, Paige, Darren, Lou, Gary, Daniel, Jack, and Alex. And, oh, last but not least, Roland. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. We would, of course, like to extend a huge thank you to Ali for coming on. And Ali, where are a few places we can find you on the internet? So you can find me on Twitter at RusifalsU. Uh, Rusifals Unite Movie Podcast is also on Facebook and Instagram. And yeah, wherever, you know, your podcatcher 
of choice, you'll find me on there. So yeah, do come and check out the show. Thank you, both of you, so much for having me on. This is this has been a blast. It's been super fun. Of course. It's been a really good time. <laughs> yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah.